Hello, I'm Forrest Coleman. I'm Julia Turan. And I'm Erica Senior. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Moral Tajerian, a postdoc in David Clark's lab here at Stanford and co-founder of THWACK, Science Media Consulting. I hope I was able to convey the explanation point there, mm-hmm. Moral. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Moral, we have the makings of your favorite cocktail here. Can you walk us through how to make it? Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, a disclaimer, I'm not a cocktail person, but, you know, we have to have a cocktail for the show. So this is, I guess, uh, the least, you know, offensive. Uh, offensive. Drink. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't mix my liquor. So what, what would you? But, would you... Um, this one is called an old pal. So you have to mix three parts uh, bourbon, two parts dry vermouth and two parts Campari. And you want to shake it with some ice and add with a garnish of, you know, orange or lime. And there you have it. It's pretty good. So what would you normally drink if you don't like cocktails? I like drinking whiskey by itself. Mm-hmm. So That is a common occurrence amongst our guests on the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so scientists are hard whiskey drinkers or as well. Or cognac or just, you know, nothing adulterated too much. Yeah. And definitely nothing with too, too much, you know, fruit juice or too much sugar. So. Scientists like their experiments complicated, but their drinks simple, I think. Is that makes, yeah, it makes sense. So you went to graduate school in Montreal, which had a large impact on your life path. Could you tell us how you ended up in Montreal? So uh, when I first came to Montreal, a lot of people, I guess, asked me. I guess I looked so out of place that people had to ask why I ended up there. And I think part of it uh, was luck because I had applied to a lot of grad schools. So I had just finished my undergrad in biology and I had two minors in chemistry and psychology and I did some you know I worked a little bit in between so I didn't start my graduate school right away Uh, I was a medical representative very embarrassing finally uh, I decided to go to med school after almost a year and I applied to different schools in different countries and it was almost like an adventure and I said you know let's see which one responds first and at the end I got a couple of uh, offer letters and I said hmm Montreal that sounds interesting. I'm going there. So it was partly, I guess, the program, which was at McGill. It was the biology department at McGill. But I think the main reason was the, the city. So where are you from originally? I'm Armenian. I grew up in Lebanon. And I lived, you know, a big part of my life in Canada, in Montreal. So a bit from everywhere. So amongst the many influences on your life in graduate school, you married uh, your husband, Sebastian, who you went to graduate school with. So how did you guys meet more precisely? Do you remember meeting him for the first time? So I don't know. I mean, watching a lot of... um, No, I don't watch a lot of romantic comedies. I don't like them. But other people who watch them, you know, usually I think the big issue is where do you meet someone? And uh, for me, it was, I guess, I got it easy because I met someone that I lived with in a graduate residence. Because honestly, otherwise, I don't know where I would have met someone. I mean, (laughs) you can always find faults with people and, you know, people can be so different. But you can find someone so close to you if you already share, you know, some of the fundamental things. So we met at a graduate residence. I had already finished my master's at that point. And he had just started. He was fresh out of his undergrad and had just moved to Montreal from Ottawa. And uh, we had this old Victorian residence that we uh, shared, nine students, nine graduate students, and it had this really rickety door that looked like an entrance but was actually an exit, so no one could enter through it. And one day I'm there, third year in the same residence, and this guy is, like, tearing the door. I'm like, oh, another newbie who doesn't know where the door is, where the entrance door is. So I go, and I 
I see him. It's like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> and a couple of months later, we started seeing each other. A year later, we moved in together. And half a year after that, we started collaborating together. Another half a year after that, uh, we got engaged, uh, got married, had a kid, uh, moved to California. And, you know, everything happened. Uh, really, everything snowballed. We started the company together. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But I think this is a great example of how, you know, when you find the right person, synergy happens, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, when you were in graduate school, you and your husband co-authored a number of papers together, but you weren't in the same lab. So how did that happen? <laughs> so um, I guess one of the problems when you uh, when you're in the same you know profession as your significant other is that there is no real separation between you know work and life because you come home and you talk about work, and the other person unfortunately understands it all too well, mm-hmm. and he starts talking about it too. You know, I'm sure if I was you know a furniture salesman, this type of conversation wouldn't have happened as much. You know. Mm-hmm. Said, okay, let's leave work to work. But, you know, we would say, you know, I found this data today. I'm a bit surprised. And he would say, you know, why don't we look at this way? So we always, always, you know, uh, talked about each other's work. And uh, every now and then we would say, you know, we wish we could do this, but we, we have it set up in our lab. We don't have it set up in your lab. These two labs don't collaborate. But, no, it would be an interesting thing. And uh, one day we said, you know, let's start answering a small question. So we started with very small questions that we could answer, you know, by jumping from one lab to the other. And we got some cool answers, and then that led to bigger experiments that we planned. Um, But at some point, we had to tell our supervisors. My supervisor was really cool about it, and she said, sure, this sounds like a wonderful idea. Thank you for doing all this work. You can continue. You have my full support. Sebastian's professor, on the other hand, said, this is a waste of time. You're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get any data. You're not wasting resources. So being, I guess, uh, stubborn and uh, liking to do illegal things, we said, we'll (laughs) go after work and we'll just use the resources that other people didn't want or aren't using right away. So uh, it was a crazy time in our lives because uh, we used to have like three shift days at work. We would do a morning shift and an afternoon shift and then we would go nap a little bit and then do the graveyard shift from like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. because everyone else would have left. And that's where we could go and collect the uh, data for our new project. And finally, we put together enough, all the figures, and I wrote the draft of the paper, and wow. we sat down the two professors. and was like, we have a paper. <laughs> and uh, my supervisor already knew, because she was cool with it, but the other guy was very impressed. Like, okay, perfect, we'll submit this to Nature. They didn't take it, but it was a very good paper. It was one meeting, he was, he was just fine with it? He was very happy with the result. I think professors are always surprised when you come with the data and it's already done and they didn't have to, you know, beg you for it or Mm -hmm. run after you to chase you to get the data. So you did it for them. They're happy. So he was very happy with that. And honestly, that type of collaboration, the same collaboration is still continuing right now, although we've left a year and a half ago. So we're very happy to so have both your bosses of... know now. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows. <laughs> they know. They know. We've joked about it so many times. I think uh, they're happy we did it. Part of the culture at McGill is that there's this type of frankness in relationships with each other. You know, you're allowed to color a little bit outside the lines and, and it's perfectly fine. And I think that encourages creativity. And, uh, you know, if we were in a very structured university where we would have gotten in trouble for doing this, I think this could have ended very badly for us. But instead, we ended up publishing a number of papers together, and and the collaboration is still ongoing, and they're you know, getting grants and publishing together as well. So what were these secret experiments? What question were you trying to answer? Uh, so uh, at that point, my project was working with uh, a transgenic model of back pain, which is a big problem, but you don't have 
very well characterized animal models for it. So we had a good model. Transgenic, meaning you, you change something in the mouse's DNA and the mouse feels back pain. How does that, how does that uh, happen? So it hap- I guess we can think about there's a two-step process. You can do something that will prevent uh, the discs in the low back to regenerate after injury or trauma or just regular wear and tear. I and see. eventually these animals are going to have this degeneration and this is the model of pain associated with this degeneration. Gotcha. So there are other models as well, but uh, this is one that we could validate very well. But what my husband was studying at that point was uh, cancer epigenetics. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were thinking, you know, what are the environmental interactions that affect, you know, your genes? Because we know in humans, uh, the gene that we were interested in, its expression changes, you know, with age and whether you have pain or not, the expression. So we were saying, you know, what if there is an epigenetic component to it? And at that point, pain epigenetics was not a field that people knew about or published in, and everyone was kind of giving us weird looks the first few times we even talked about it. So when you say epigenetics, what do you what do you mean? So with epigenetics, I guess as the name suggests, it's everything above genetics. So you're born with the genes you have, but it's you're not doomed forever if you have genes that you don't like because your genes adapt to the environment. And this is an idea I guess we can trace back all the way to Lamarck, but it became very popular in the field of uh, cancer research because many people believe that cancer now is an epigenetic disease itself. Uh, so we're thinking about uh, thinking about pain as an epigenetic disease, or at least a disease that has an epigenetic component, because uh, notoriously uh, it's been very hard to find pain genes, and a lot of geneticists are very frustrated by that. So uh, that was the good thing about that is that we could, you know, have uh, a transgenic mouse model, and then we could uh, study the epigenetics of that as well in wild-type animals by looking at the methylation status of that particular gene that we had a transgenic for. And I guess what distinguished this work is that we could translate it to humans, which was a whole different uh, challenge altogether because we had to get the human uh, specimen, and that was not uh, easy to do. So you the, had to get back cells from someone that was uh, experiencing had to back get pain? <laughs> what did you have to, what cells did you need to so get? So we needed human discs, but of course it's very difficult, or you have to be very convincing to get someone to give you I don't want, you, I don't want to give you my discs. Someone is doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one way to get it from uh, patients who have disc uh, degeneration is through surgical samples. So people are undergoing surgery to remove this you know, quote-unquote faulty disc. And uh, if someone went through the trouble of storing those discs, then you can analyze them. But, of course, you need also the control for these, which is where it gets difficult. So where did you end up getting? This This, uh, se- this seems like a difficult thing to pull off in a secret project <laughs> yes, uh, so, environment. Yes, uh, so luckily, as I said, my professor was on my side, so that was good. Oh, we okay. could uh, The human samples we could get because... So, again, life is full of, you know, a lot of luck because the surgical samples we got because the person who collected them for 10 years or so decided that she no longer wants to stay in academia and she wants to go to her private clinical practice. So she had no need for those samples. So we inherited those samples. We had to bring them all the way from the States. So again, you know, a lot of little uh, little things that have to come together. Stars have to, you know, uh, line up. For the cadaveric samples, we had to be part of this small consortium or, or group of people that were sharing cadaveric samples. So these so are the normal ones, the ones just these people are the who died for ones, some but other reason. Uh, that's why they had to be cadaveric, yeah. uh, because otherwise it's impossible to get those tissues. Uh, so that was a bit difficult because you get those samples any hour of the day, depending on when the, the sample is available, mm. because people, you know, pass away at you know, any time. And you wanted right? to get, you wanted to sort of 
similarly fresh. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that good. was another, I guess, level of uh, difficulty and another challenge we had to deal with. Uh, but it was nice because uh, for a long time it was the only study that could translate the pain epigenetic study to humans. So that and you really found the same step. the same changes. Yes, in, we could in actually translate it to humans. Oh, so wow. when you say pain epigenetics, does that mean that you don't inherit your susceptibility to pain? So just like I guess in any uh, other uh, condition, we we don't completely rule out the effect of the genes, of course. Uh, however, we do think that uh, maybe that's not the majority. So maybe your life experiences are the ones who can work with your genes to change the outcome of your pathology or your predisposition and. I mean, people know this. Common sense tells us, you know, it, you, you, your lifestyle is going to change the way you look. I think there's even a saying that says, you know, uh, you're, uh, you don't, you're born a certain, you know, you look a certain way at birth, but the way you look at the age of 40 or so is, is what you deserve, is what you earned, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's epigenetics, right? Yeah. It can that's also be a complicated mess of the two, right? Because all the there epigenetics is mean is just that, some gene expression change, and there could be a genetic component to there the way in which gene exactly, expression changes. There, exactly. Yeah. I mean, of course, we're not ruling that out, but yeah. we're saying that there's a huge contribution of the environment as well. And this is something I personally like because it's kind of like the movie Gattaca. It's almost, it's a very optimistic approach. You know, imagine telling someone, no, you know, you're, you're, you're doomed to be, you know, unhealthy and, and you're doomed to have chronic pain and you're doomed. And, and uh, maybe there's an alternative to that. And uh, for me, that was a personal thing, I guess. So I think when we think of, well, when I think about pain, at least acute pain, you think of it as sort of an adaptive mechanism. You know, you burn your hand, you feel pain, and so you learn not to put your hand on the stove again, that sort of thing. So what is the reason or what do people think could be the reason why you get chronic pain in this sort of situation where there is no outside force maybe acting on the body or on the animal? Absolutely. You made a very uh, important, important point because, as you said, pain itself is extremely important. In fact, people who have congenital uh, problems where they don't feel uh, pain die fairly young mm -hmm. because, you know, they don't realize if they step on something and then they die of an infection, which is, you know, very sad because we take it for granted that we can tell if we're injured, you know. And um, and we know that that's true with other animals as well. You know, it really helps their evolution if they have that pain sensitivity. And uh, we are not uh, necessarily talking about acute pain. And some people are. My research isn't about acute pain. Acute pain can be important in you know, terms of anesthesia and surgery and post-surgical recovery, etc. But uh, my field uh, is chronic pain, which we distinguish as, uh, from acute pain as being a pathology or a disease in itself. Mm -hmm. And this was a concept that was a little difficult to digest at first because people would say, you know, why? You know, pain is good for you and pain is an important thing. How can you classify that as a disease? Maybe you can classify it as a sign or a symptom of another condition, but can it be a disease in itself? Mm -hmm. However, you can argue that, yes, it can be a disease in itself since the stimulus that caused the injury or whatever, you know, the reason was, has long gone. Mm -hmm. uh, the recovery has happened many, many years ago, yet the person has pain. So therefore, it is justifiable to see it as a pathology in itself.
So what, what have you learned so far about chronic pain? What was the changes in this gene doing that was causing the chronic, chronic pain? So again, for my uh, PhD and after, my, after I submitted my thesis, I did a couple of other projects that had to do with chronic pain. But for that particular uh, study, uh, what we were looking at was the effect of age on that, on that particular gene and how aging changes that particular gene that can cause degeneration. So in that case, the environment was, you know, aging, aging. An aging environment. Mm -hmm. uh, however, in a different model, uh, we used an animal model of neuropathy, of uh, chronic neuropathy, where, you know, the a peripheral nerve in the leg is injured in animals. It's called the spared nerve injury model, and animals have uh, neuropathy forever. And uh, in that case, we actually didn't look at peripheral mechanisms like we did with the back pain study. Rather, we looked at what happens in the brain, because at the end of the day, if you don't have a brain, you don't have pain, you know? Mm -hmm. So brain is boss when it comes to pain, because pain at the end of the day is a perception, you know? So we were actually looking at changes in the brain following nerve injury and what we did is we waited for a really long time, six months, which is very long for a mouse, six months after the induction of injury to find long-term changes in the brain. And this was a shot in the dark. Uh, mm -hmm. We did this experiment because I wanted to learn a technique. And uh, the technique is a technique that measures global methylation. It's fairly simple. If anyone is interested, they can easily learn and do it. Uh, I wanted to learn the technique, so I did it in uh, Sebastian's lab. And uh, I said, you know, I have some brains from animals who have had injury for six months. And imagine if we can find something that has changed globally. Mm -hmm. I was not expecting to see changes because changes like that you see after something huge like cancer, you know? So why, why, maybe you can just describe methylate, what methylation is at a really mm -hmm. basic level. So the level. methylation is the addition of a methyl moiety, which is a CH3 group that will repress gene expression. So... So if you're looking at particular genes, you want to look at the gene promoter methylation. So we're talking about CPG methylation, so in areas that are rich in CPGs. These are not the only places where they happen, but those, those are the areas that we mainly look so at. So looking at very particular spots in the DNA exactly. sequence. Exactly. Right. Not actually the genes, but the, the, the areas. The promoter of the, of the gene is right. what you, where you would look if you're looking at a particular gene of interest, which is what we did with our back pain. So, uh, so as I said, this was not something we were expecting to see results for, but we said, wouldn't it be cool? You know, that would really be uh, life-changing. And uh, we actually saw differences. We saw a huge hypomethylation of the global genome. So all the... It was a global approach. This technique is a global approach. Uh, and we could see uh, this huge change. And that, said, that told us that something big is happening, even though the injury was six months ago. So these are changes that are staying in your brain six months after, you know, you hurt your foot. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's something that's happening that's keeping the memory of the initial insult or the initial injury in your whole body. So this is some type of uh, memory that your spinal cord, that your brain will remember forever. And so it was reducing the expression of the whole of all the genes in the brain? Or? Uh, in that particular case, we looked at one area, which is the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason we looked at that area is because in a previous study, uh, what my then supervisor had done, she had uh, looked at the prefrontal cortex in humans. And what she did is she found patients with back pain and she imaged their brains. And she found that the prefrontal uh, cortex, the uh, gray matter density has decreased. Mm -hmm. which is, you know, a big drastic change. And these patients, you know, the only thing that dis distinguishes them is that they have back pain. We already know from other people's work that such changes do occur. But what 
I guess was important about her work is that after the patients were treated for their pain, and no matter how they were treated, whether by drugs or physiotherapy or yoga or whatever, these brain changes were reversed. So that told us that maybe something uh, very uh, reversible is happening. And that's, again, where epigenetics comes in because, you know, the genes you're born with, they stay with you forever. Epigenetics, you can methylate, you can demethylate. It's a reversible uh, mechanism. That's why we looked at the prefrontal cortex. So that was uh, in part one particular region. We looked at other regions as well, but we focused on the PFC for our future studies. We looked at the amygdala, for example, at the thalamus. Because one big thing in pain right now is to also focus on the comorbidities that happen with it. Because pain doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, a lot of people with chronic pain also have depression, also have anxiety, uh, also have attention deficits. You know, so it's a big, it's a whole syndrome. You can take just the nociceptive part of it. It's a whole experience. So a friend of mine was describing to me this weekend um, that he had a a chronic pain issue a a while ago in which he had a repetitive stress injury uh, from typing on the keyboard. But he noticed... (laughs) You know, and he had lots of doctors telling him that he had tears in his his tendons and things like this. But but he noticed that his uh, that his hands were getting really cold when and <laughs> and when he started typing, and that this was kind of uh, coincident with with the pain. Is there? Are there well-understood relationships between blood flow and, and chronic pain? That's very interesting. So first of all, uh, the scientific thing uh, to to have done at that point would have been to actually measure the temperature. So he actually did that because he's okay. a computer scientist <laughs> and he found that the temperature of his hands dropped by 20 degrees wow. when he started typing. That's very interesting. You know, uh, so... <laughs> the model I'm working on now, so I've worked with different models of pain, so back pain, neuropathic pain. The model I'm working on now is a model of complex regional pain syndrome. And in this model, I don't know if you guys, you guys have heard of it, but uh, a lot of the times it happens after trauma or injury, if you you know break your arm or leg, or uh, even if you don't, you're just playing tennis, you go to sleep, you think everything is okay, you wake up and then you know uh, your wrist is hurting, the next day it's all swollen, et cetera, et cetera. And this type of condition uh, is uh, characterized by big vascular uh, changes. And uh, one of the uh, things is that it... Uh, you have hot and cold phases, so initially you can have, you know, very hot um, hand or leg or, you know, it depends on where, which extremity was affected. And in our animal model as well, you see the hind foot is very hot, then it gets a bit cooler. So there is definitely crosstalk between, you know, vascular and, you know, nervous uh, systems, most definitely. Maybe even bizarrely, more bizarrely, he told me that he, he could think about typing and get his make his hands go cold. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I didn't measure it myself, but I, I, I really don't have any reason to believe he was lying. I just wanted to know. Uh, I, I believe that because, as I said earlier, pain is in the brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, can we take a step back? So you were looking at the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is sort of known as the executive functioning mm-hmm. branch yes. of the brain, if you will. So it's involved in sort of higher level thinking, decision making, and that sort of thing. So why would an injury in the back cause changes in that part of the brain? Uh-huh. Uh, so for the PFC stuff, the injury was actually uh, in the foot. Not that it would oh, make yeah. a difference. <laughs> but, uh, uh, we, we know from human studies that humans with back pain or neuropathy, et cetera, et cetera, they do have problems uh, with uh, uh, a lot of uh, things like risk-taking, higher-order thinking, memory. Uh, so your brain does change uh, with pain. We don't know exactly why. Could it be, 
I don't know. It could be that uh, maybe the cognitive load is now higher for every cognitive task since, you know, your brain is preoccupied with pain. There could be many reasons. I'm mm -hmm. not a brain imaging expert, uh, but we do know that there are a lot of uh, these changes happening in humans. And one thing we want to do is to actually see if these things also happen in our animal models because then we can actually discover what are the changes that uh, we're seeing. Uh, one thing I did with my um, complex regional pain syndrome uh, animals, I looked at memory, uh, different types of memory, social memory, object recognition, object location, etc. And we did find some differences in animals who were living with pain for, you know, a couple of uh, months. One obvious hypothesis that comes to mind is, is stress. I mean, I know there's a large literature about yes. the effect of stress on neurogenesis and, and particularly, you yes. know, in the hippocampus. And yes, like and there's, of course, crosstalk between, you know, the amygdala. Uh, but uh, one thing we also did, we did stress uh, anxiety uh, testing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little tricky when you, when it goes to animal testing, it gets a little hard because we do have, you know, characterized uh, tests for anxiety, for depression, for all these things. But there's always so many confounds because it's very difficult to know what the mouse is thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, with our model, we could uh, find some anxiety deficits as well. And we did find some dendritic changes, uh, changes in the basic dendritic architecture in the amygdala, for example. We found some memory problems that are not hippocampal dependent, or so we think, and we found architectural changes in the parietal cortex. So we could kind of find, you know, uh, a neurobiological substrate for these behavioral changes, uh, so to speak. So this is one advantage of, you know, of course, using uh, animal models. But again, we don't exactly know what's going on, but we're trying to find out. So changing gears a little bit, mm -hmm. in graduate school you started a business called THWACK, spelled T-H-W-A-C-K-E, an exclamation mark, with your husband. Could you tell us about this business and how you decided to start a business? Yes, I would love to. So <laughs> um, I don't know if, if I'm alone in this or if other people have their life you know, better planned, but I never had my life very well, well planned. And when, I when people look back at my CV, they said, oh, it looks like you always knew what you wanted because you know, your undergrad was in biology and psychology and chemistry, and then you went on with neurobiology, and then did your PhD in the department of neurology. And all, yeah. But that was completely coincidental. <laughs> and everything else that happened also, things, if you had asked me 15 years ago, I would have said that wouldn't happen to me. I, I don't think so, you know. But uh, nonetheless, all these uh, happy coincidences did happen. So one of the things is, as you said, we found a thwack. And I love the name. I love thwack. I just, uh, it, it's a wonderful idea. I mean, <laughs> everyone probably thinks their ideas are good. But uh, at the beginning, we did not think so. So it took me a while to realize that, no, you know, we can own this. And this is a good idea, you know. To back up, I guess, I play video games. Sebastian plays video games. That's something we always do. We spend as much time playing video games as doing science. Uh, wow. <laughs> I remember we would have like meetings with our wait, PIs. Wait, and there aren't that many wait, hours in a day. Yeah, I have an important <laughs> question. That Which came first, you playing video games together or you dating? And if so... Us what was dating. the first video game you played with oh, your husband? Oh, us dating. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> I would say, oh my gosh. Let me see if I remember. I would say Prince of Persia, maybe. 
Maybe Prince of Persia. I, I'm not too sure, though, because there were so many games in and out. But uh, we, <laughs> I guess he was trying to, to hold off on telling me that he, like, he loves mm, video games. Right. And, you know, that's not the first thing that you want to show people usually. <laughs> uh, but we did a lot of other terrible first date ideas. But, but we had fun anyways. Uh, <laughs> um, but video games came, I guess, a little later to answer your question. But uh, he was very surprised and happy that I like it. And his friends were surprised. Just like, you found the girl loves video games like yeah so (laughs) that worked out super well particularly nowadays i don't know if you guys are gamers or whoever is a gamer games are becoming more like interactive movies you can actually have an audience watching you play a game so sometimes we play co-op games as well but even when i'm playing and he's watching it's fun for him and vice versa because games nowadays are just so interactive and they have Mm -hmm. such good storylines and good narratives so it's actually fun so that was uh, you know one thing we had in common in addition to both of us doing science so you know we'd always get a new game and we're excited about it and a lot of games have you know a huge sci-fi component and us being scientists it was only natural that every now and then we would get frustrated and we would say you know this doesn't make any sense who wrote this you Mm -hmm. know like this this could have been better but then if you think about the person who wrote it he's you know probably very well respected writer he's just not a scientist and guess what not everyone is a scientist and they shouldn't they don't have to be you know Mm -hmm. so that's something that we always you know talked about but we didn't think that, oh, we should go and do something about it. You know, we just complained and nagged. But at some point, there was a, a game testing session. At that point, we saw one of the people in the studio actually Wikipediaing DNA, so what DNA was. And afterwards, Sebastian was telling me, you know, they could have asked me. I could have told them. It's like, yeah, but why would they ask you, right? Like, no one comes to someone say, are you a scientist? Can we answer some of my questions? So that just doesn't happen. But imagine if you actually have a business that's catered towards that. Sorry, you said you were at a game testing? Yes. So a lot of games before being released, you know, they tested on people to see, you know, is it too hard? Is it too easy? Are there glitches here? Are there... So uh, you you can test the game before it's being released. So you and you and your husband would go to these? Uh, for, for that, it was just him. Just him, yeah. <laughs> so after that, we talked and we're thinking, you know, can we do it? And it's like, how, how can we, you know, we know nothing about business and and we have to finish our PhDs and, you know, we don't have enough time to do this. But the more we played games, the more we said, you know, there's a real need for this. Someone should do this. And mm-hmm. and we started looking up and it's like, no one is doing this. How come? You know, we have so many scientists who don't know what to do, you know, and like we always say, you know, it's hard to find a job, etc. And no one is actually doing this one job that we think is very much needed. And that's how we founded Twack. But before we founded it, we kind of wanted to get a feel of the market. So we started posting some articles where we were doing a scientific analysis of fiction in different games. For example, there are different types of aliens. We wrote an article, and I remember that article very well. It was in April 2012. We wrote about uh, these aliens and how they could have evolved and why they evolved to be that way. Maybe for a scientist, they would say, you know, this is not really scientific. But, you know, for the layperson, they would say, you know, this is much more scientific than than what we've seen so far. And that's the whole point, you know, to find that happy medium. And we wrote that and we were so surprised by the feedback because we got so many people who actually read the article. And it was so sad in a way because you spent so much time and money and effort to publish scientific paper that very few people will read. (laughs) 
or understand, sadly. Mm -hmm. And yet you can, you know, spend maybe two days writing an article to the layperson who will love it and appreciate it and forward to their friends and spread the word. That was an eye-opener for us. So that was proof for us that this is needed. Mm -hmm. And that's where we got more courage to launch THWAC. So you said you loved the name THWAC. So what does it mean and how did you come up with it? So we wanted something that kind of gives that old comic book feel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we didn't want to have like a very generic like consultancy name, you know, that, that was very like business-like. We wanted something that it, it had that comic book feel. So we went through a lot of these comic books, you know, when they're hitting each other, it's like, pow. So we went through a lot of these. And when we saw Swag, it's like, hmm, that sounds good, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, that's what we stuck with. So do you remember what the first meeting that you had with your clients was like? So the thing is with Twack during the early days, what I remember the most is just more than the, I remember the first meeting, but what I remember more than that is the attempted introductions that we made when we first went to the market because it was such a strange idea, you know, to show up, you really feel out of place, you know, you're a scientist and chances are you're the only scientist there and you're going to tell them that somehow you, you guys can work together and you can actually help them and you understand them and and that was a very uh, strange thing to do and it was very awkward on both parts because you know they would talk to you and they would be nice to you and then all of a sudden they would hear science and immediately they're really suppressed like what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. You know, what can we have in common? I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for years. And clearly you, you have your thing figured out. We don't need to cross paths here, you know. And and that was uh, the difficulty. So I remember a lot of awkward moments where we had to kind of, you know, break the ice and say, you know, we can actually help you guys and we can really help you have a more polished version of the vision that you have already. Mm -hmm. When you finally got your first client, what was their response? So <laughs> one of uh, our, he was, uh, so these guys weren't our first clients, but they were one of our first clients. And I remember the first physical meeting we had with them because a lot of the business we also do just online because mm -hmm. sometimes it's just very hard or sometimes we just send one of the team members to go because it's just not needed even to be there physically. But there was this one meeting where we were there physically, the whole team. And we just walked in and they were already there. It was like this big procession, you know, they were waiting there at the conference. We all walk in, it's like scientists are coming in and we sit down and no one knows where to start. You know, it was just very strange. And there was a lot of just looking at each other. And then someone said, well, you know, we read your your script and this is where we think we can help. So it was very helpful for us to, to have specific suggestions for them just to kind of break the ice and give them something to think about, you know, to mm -hmm. say, okay, these guys really know about our lore, they know about our fiction, and they have real life science to back it up. So since then, have companies come to you realizing that this is something that they want, or are you still seeking them out? Yes. So this this was, of course, the the encouraging part, because at the beginning, you know, when you start a new business, you're not quite sure how well people are going to receive it, you know. And at first, of course, you have to go knocking on doors. And there's this beautiful switch where people start coming to you, mm -hmm. you know. And the first few emails you get, they're just so amazing. And for us, it was, uh, a lot of it was word of mouth. So they would hear from our previous clients and they would say, you know, we heard from these guys uh, that you do good work and, and we're here to see if you guys can help us out. And that's very flattering for us, of course. And at the same time, we feel very satisfied that we did a good job with the first client, that they thought this was important enough that they told their friends about it. So what kind of suggestions do you make? Do you have an example of something that you suggested, a change that a video game makes that you think really makes a difference and makes it more immersive? Mm -hmm. 
as people at TWAC, we never went into any project saying, you know, we're going to take your project and maybe your project is, you know, five, we're going to make it to 10, we're going to make it magnificent. We never went with that approach. We always felt that they already have something very, very good. We just want to ground it a little bit, make mm -hmm. it plausible. Our aim was never to make it completely real, but just make it plausible enough so that the people are immersed in it, just like you just said. So one of the things we worked on uh, was uh, the game Outlast. Uh, and the studio is called Red Barrels from Montreal. At that point, we were still in Montreal. And uh, one thing we did was actually they wanted to set their game in a mental asylum. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason, of course, you know, is to uh, fit their game mechanics into it because, you know, you want your enemies to be a certain way, etc., depending on how you set your game. And their game was a horror game. It's like this whole zombie craze, you know, it's mm -hmm. easy to just say, you know, they're zombies, that's why they're attacking you, you can add 50 more, 100 more, they're just zombies. So it's just a, an easy cop-out, I guess. So for that, we were worried that the outcome was going to be similar. They're going to say, oh, these are just crazy people doing crazy things, you know, make it in the mental asylum, mm -hmm. you know. So we said, you know, maybe we can make it a bit more real, we can actually make it a bit plausible, so we can actually based the fiction on real life people who were, you know, deemed to be criminally insane and put in these institutions. And we actually made profiles for each inmate or patient in that asylum. We had real life inspirations for every single patient that was in the game, which was amazing. And on top of that, what the gamers or the viewers liked about it is that it didn't stigmatize mental illness. Not mm -hmm. everyone was attacking you. It was real. It was even more scary because not everyone was attacking you. And you know, you're walking and someone was just, you know, looking at the wall and doing his own thing and and that made it more real and also scarier which sort it was a win-win another thing uh, we did and this is this may sound so obvious for you know scientists but a lot of people who are not scientists maybe they don't know exactly what the inside of a lab looks like mm -hmm. and if you you know watch even movies sometimes you will see labs in movies or, or tv series and that don't make a lot of sense. There's no blame here, you know, not everyone knows everything. So one of the things they requested was actually to come and see the inside of labs. They said, if we were doing this type of experiment, what would our lab look like? Mm -hmm. So they actually came and said, we want to see lab fridge, you know, like basic things that we take for granted that can be so useful for the artist who really needs an inspiration to draw something, to make, to animate something for his game. I mean, the lab so, fridge, that's truly scary, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of basic, basic things that we, we assume everyone knows, but why would they know? Think about it. Like, does your grandma know what your lab fridge looks like? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. So think about it that way, you know? Yeah. So what's your favorite example of a creature or concept in a video game being really, really removed from scientific reality? Oh, gosh. There are so many. Uh, you see so many aliens who look, of course, exactly like humans. Mm -hmm. You have so many biological uh, weapons, you know, biological warfare that doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, that can easily be stopped or can easily be detected, and mm -hmm. yet it spreads. Uh, the whole zombie thing, I, I don't know if you've seen this meme, it's like, I can't open a jar of pickle when I'm, you know, not zombified, and then I can tear people's skulls when I'm a zombie, you know, does that happen? <laughs> so there's, there's just so many. But the thing is, I mean, I'm glad you ask because there's so many people almost stop thinking about it and we just say you know just give me the fiction and uh, I won't ask any questions but when you do the other thing where you make it plausible people really feel that this is real life because mm -hmm. they're not doing that uh, they're not doing that surrender to fiction they're actually feeling that this is you know real mm -hmm. and that's where it gets really immersive but unfortunately most of the fiction is just that you know it just doesn't make a lot of sense 
So for, for many scientists, there's a big transition from being a, a working scientist, like a graduate student and a postdoc, to becoming a professor. And I know nothing about this, but I sort of intuit that it happens. Um, <laughs> and, that, and that you become a professor, and then all of a sudden you're put in charge of managing people, and you have to manage you know, your scientific budget and all these aspects of things, which are kind of similar in a way to, to starting to run a business. So I'm curious whether running a business kind of came naturally to you and maybe mm. are there any memorable stories you might have about learning how to take on these other kinds of roles that are implicit in business that don't exist? That's an excellent question. So one thing that comes to mind is that I was lucky to be in a lab uh, as a PhD student where the PI was very open about sharing grant proposals, about sharing any kind of, you know, contract or proposal that can get you funding. And these are all important things to know. You know, you're, you you should learn how to sell your stuff, you know. So she really encouraged me to, to apply for grants, for example, which a lot of PhD students don't get the opportunity to do. So I had my own, you know, grant funding as a as PhD student. So I learned how to sell my research to get money for it. Uh, I had undergraduates to mentor, which made me, you know, have a small team that I can mentor. So these were all very lucky things, lucky opportunities that I had. I'm very grateful for my supervisor, Laura Stone. So these are all skills that came in handy when we're trying to sell our ideas to, you know, studios, to other people who are interested in the company, and to potential consultants, of course, because one thing that surprised us a lot is that a lot of the difficulty isn't dealing with the client, it's dealing with other consultants for THWACs, other mm. people on the team. Because we have to think about it this way. THWAC does very multidisciplinary science consultancy, meaning we have scientists from all backgrounds, we have engineers as well. So at the end of the day, it turns into this power of Babel situation. So you really have to find this language of translation among all these individuals. And that is not very easy. And I think a lot of people who do multidisciplinary research will tell you the same thing in academia. And mm -hmm. that's something we learned in academia, how to, you know, talk to other people from outside your disciplines, which is something I did, you know, as a PhD student and Sebastian did. And that really helped us because it really made us put ourselves in the other person's shoes and see it from their point of view, because it's very important for track to have, you know, coherent vision, although the consultancy itself is very multidisciplinary. Hmm. So do you have any big dreams for THWAC? Do you have uh, an idea of where you want to go next? Initially, when we started, we thought maybe this will only be for games. Mm -hmm. However, we soon realized that there's a need for it in maybe exhibits, exhibits that have to do with sci-fi. Mm -hmm. And recently, we worked with a company called Victory Hill. They're putting together an exhibit where they do the sci-fi of different sci-fi IPs, including Marvel. So this is something we helped with, and this is some, not something we initially had thought we would do, you know. We thought, you know, let's start with video games. We don't know where it will take us. But we soon saw that, you know, exhibits is another outlet. Of course, another outlet is just films, mm -hmm. uh, because that's where you also see a lot of sci-fi. So it can even be in books, you know. So we really wanted to be anywhere where good science is needed to back up the fiction. Mm -hmm. You know, we love fictional creatures. We, 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 we like Godzilla, but he needs legs, legs to stand on. And that's twack, you know, that's mm -hmm. the legs that really grounds the fiction. We want something plausible. And our aim is for twack to really be present every time science fiction is present. Mm -hmm. 
Have you ever thought about or engaged in the idea of creating your own video game? What would that look like? <laughs> I'm very happy you asked this. Uh, wow, it's almost as if I gave you the question. But uh, <laughs> yes, that is something we are currently working on. Oh, cool. So when we found the TWAC, the aim was not to make educational video games. Educational video games are wonderful. They're great. But that was simply not the aim. The aim mm -hmm. was to just help any game and make it more plausible. That was the aim. Games can be a very uh, efficient learning tool, like we are starting to realize now. So we really want all these concepts to be accessible to everyone because sometimes it's very, despite all the outreach efforts that we have, including this podcast itself, it's very difficult to reach everyone. And games mm -hmm. are a wonderful medium to really reach all age groups everywhere, all ge geographical locations, both, you know, men and women. So really it's for everyone. And we think we would like to use that uh, as a medium. And who better than Thwack because we are all scientists and gamers. Mm. What about the reverse of this? So there's a couple of examples, at least a couple of examples that I know of, of, of scientists creating games in order to try to help their science. So there's this program from David Baker's lab, the University of Washington, which called Fold It, where they try to get human players to figure out how proteins fold up. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a something called iWire from Sebastian Sung's lab, who's now at Princeton, but was at MIT when he made it, to help trace the connections in the retina. Have you played either of those games? What do you uh, think of those games? Yes. Are, are there ways in which gamers, uh, you know, the scientists could really learn from gaming yes. to make it? Uh, so in this case, it's almost this is what we would characterize as, let's say, citizen science, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it's really taking advantage of people's uh, ability and willingness to play video games to actually advance science. And this is, I think, a wonderful idea because we all can be scientists in our own way and a lot of people are intimidated if they're not scientists if you ask them to come to a lab and do science imagine if you go to your you know eight-year-old nephew's house and say come to my lab this weekend and do science for me <laughs> he would be terrified but say play fold it for me or I wire or whatever and they would gladly do it you know so it's really giving them the, uh, the opportunity to do science and to do citizen science and I think citizen science is definitely very very important and that's the, another aspect of it so far it hasn't been our focus but we really think that the existence of these other games just comes to show you how important games are as a medium both to advance science so uh, really help uh, non-scientists non advance science and also scientists to help non-scientists understand science and learn it. So it goes both ways, definitely. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about what you've done in, as a, a graduate student when you were at mm -hmm. McGill, but you're here now at Stanford. So how did you end up at Stanford and what are you studying now? Uh, yes. So Again, I don't know if I'm, I'm just, uh, luck plays a big role in my life. Uh, maybe not luck, but maybe flexibility. I didn't know if I was going to like California or even going to end up here. I was in, in cold Montreal, which is very different from, you know, California in every way. And everyone who knew me would say, you know, I think you're going to end up in California. You're going to love California, you know, organic food and, and vegetarian and this and that. And I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I like Montreal, but we'll see. Maybe Europe. I'm not sure. And uh, I came to SFN a couple of years ago in San Diego. I was at the airport and I said, that's it. I'm never going back. I just love <laughs> I just love California. <laughs> so years later, when I had almost finished my PhD, I was looking at postdoc opportunities and, you know, writing different fellowship proposals with different PIs. And I had options in Australia. Again, I like to, you know, have very different options because it's it's more fun that way. Also in at Stanford. Mm -hmm. The initial person I wanted to work with, actually, 
we couldn't get funding. And they said, oh, you know, if you wait a little bit, we can get funding. Or you can talk to my friend here who's very interested. So again, it's very important, you know, to talk to people and really ask, you know, is there anyone else who's interested? And that's how I heard about Dave Clark being interested in a postdoc. And I came for my interview. It was December. I remember I just came for like a day and a half and I really liked it. My lab is a little bit separated at the, in the VA. So I don't enjoy, you know, the nice cafes that you guys have here. I don't enjoy, you know, the journal clubs and all these talks, but it has its own charm. I've been reading Catch-22 ever, ever since I, I started working at the, the VA just because it's so fitting. It, it just has its own charm. And Dave's lab is definitely great. He does great work. He's a great supervisor. And I continue to do pain research, which is what I want to do. And in particular, I study the effect of chronic pain on the brain, which is something I studied in Montreal. And it's a different model, but it's a similar concept. So as I mentioned earlier, is uh, one of the things we did uh, so far, and the paper has been accepted finally, which is good, is to look at the brain architectural changes at the dendritic level following chronic pain. So how did you get interested in pain in the first place? So <laughs> another good question. My master's was in something very different. I studied sexual behavior in snails mm -hmm. and courtship and sexual behavior using electrophysiological tools. So it was very, very different from pain. And my department was in the biology department at McGill. It was fun. It was very interesting. I mean, everyone knows why it's useful to work with mollusks. And I learned electrophysiology, which was really fun. But I felt that it wasn't enough to be a PhD project in itself because I always wanted to have something that's a bit more applicable. I always remember the first time my dad visited my uh, master's lab and he said, okay, so what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm recording all these traces and I'm going to find out, you know, what the brain is telling the animal when the animal wants to court or mate or exchange, you know, sperm or whatever. And my dad was saying, uh, and then what? You're going to have an in silico model and then you're going to be able to predict this. And then it's like, no, this is it. You know, <laughs> this is just it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was this disappointment and it just ended up with him saying, maybe we shouldn't tell your grandma you crossed an ocean to do this because it seems wow. a bit strange. Oh, harsh. Um, so... <laughs> um, so um, that got me to thinking about, about pain. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because these snails actually stab each other with darts uh, during sex, but it's this whole S&M thing and they like it. <laughs> and it just makes them want to, you know, store more sperm. And it's amazing. Uh, I, I completely understand. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but um, what got me thinking is that this is all fun, and it's very important to do science for science. I really don't think there is such a thing as useless science, although it would be wonderful to have a website of useless science. I would love that. We have a website of useful science now. I don't know if you guys know about that. Check it out. But useless science would be great, although not nothing is truly useless. But I wanted to do something that maybe is more preclinical and more applicable. And I was fortunate enough to be really a couple of meters away from the Alan Edwards Center for Research on Pain, which is really one of the best pain centers in the world. Mm -hmm. I was a bit nervous to go for that interview with Dora because I said, you know, why would she hire me? I know nothing about pain. Uh, she doesn't do electrophysiology. She uses very different techniques that I know. When I showed up to the interview, I was very, very nervous. And I just, you know, I did my best and she offered me a job. And I, I, I kept on thinking, like, why? You know, I, I almost don't deserve to be here. And after I graduated, I was talking to her and I said, you know, 
I didn't know any of the techniques. And she said, you know, techniques can be learned. You hire the person. Mm -hmm. You don't hire, you know, the techniques. The techniques can easily be learned. I hired you as a person. And this is something I think uh, we have to uh, remember, particularly at the graduate level, because graduate students have all this pressure to, you know, learn all the techniques and do all, publish all the papers and just run, 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 instead of just stopping and really understanding and maturing as scientists. And I think that's very important because at the end of the day, they hire the person, you know, they mm -hmm. they don't hire a list of publications. That's my firm belief and, and whole let's say, that they do hire the person and that's very important. And that's what happened uh, with Laura and I'm forever grateful. Yeah, it was something more uh, practical. And I remember years later, she, uh, when she wrote me a reference letter, she mentioned that something I said at my first interview, that I wanted something more practical. And she said, I appreciate the fact that she came to me because she wanted to do something more practical because I think it's partly, you know, social responsibility. And that's why I do pain research. And that's partly also why we do TWAC. It's partly social responsibility. Mm -hmm. So in the final part of our interview, we like to play a game, uh, mm -hmm. which we call Not My Field. Mm -hmm. And it works this way. We're going to give you the titles of three different papers, mm -hmm. uh, only one of which is an actual paper. And it's your job to tell us which is the right paper. Okay. Okay. So you don't seem nervous. <laughs> yeah, Speaking you seem, of, you're, you're very calm under pressure. science. Some of these are a little what's the worst out there. Happen? Okay, so so question one. I'll read the three options and then I'll I'll sort of briefly uh, summarize them. Um, mm -hmm. Is the real paper humans that perspire together wire together? How similar body odors can influence perceived attractiveness? Or B, elucidation of chemical compounds responsible for foot malodor? Or C. Robust and highly stable fatty acid chains from the common California jelly may enhance dish soap strength. So, is it humans that sweat together come together? Is it about the, the chemical compounds uh, responsible for smelly feet? Or is it about how jellyfish fatty acids can help wash your feet? I want to say number one. Uh, so, reading from the abstract... Uh, Short-chain fatty acids from the socks and feet of subjects either with strong foot odor or weak or no foot odor were extracted with ethyl ether and then analyzed by grass chromatography <laughs> slash mass spectromics mass and then analyzed by grass chromatography grass. Slash, <laughs> and then analyzed by GCMS <laughs> by <Although> techniques. <laughs> Um, and, and, and they found that short fatty acids were found in greater amounts from those subjects with strong foot odor. So yeah. I'm afraid you were wrong. It was number two. It was, it was number, number two. two. Yeah. Smelly feet. I can't believe someone did that. <laughs> okay, so second question. Back to my useless side. Yeah. Not that this is useless. It just it would be cool. <laughs> so which is the real paper? Number one, consuming squid ink increases aggressive behavior by altering corticosteroids in the HPA axis. Wow. Or two, farting as a defense against unspeakable dread. <laughs> or three, hippocampal stimulation in the mild-mannered blue-footed booby results in extreme agitation, new understandings of limbic mic microcircuitry. Booby. Nope. nope. <laughs> the reason I chose that is because, you know, people like the colon titles. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, colon a, yeah it's, often, it's often cute thing, colon, yes. <laughs> boring <a> thing. Boring. <laughs> so the real paper. This paper describes some features of the behavior of a severely disturbed adopted latency boy 
Peter, what the hell? Is it? No, it's a really, it's actually a sad paper. Uh, so I'll just summarize. Basically, it's a it's a kid who had a very troubled upbringing, and then in later times, as he was improving, anytime he was agitated, he would fart, basically as a defense against the person who was agitating him. Wow. So it's who actually finds these papers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, who them? finds them? Oh, it's, it's Erica. Uh, yeah, definitely. I found them. Are these recent papers? Uh, some of them are. I usually put the date, but I didn't put the date on this one. Yeah, how do you find these? I can't tell you that. <laughs> I'm clearly very bad at this game. <laughs> All right, you have one more try. So this is the, the last number question, number three. Okay, so is it option A, wash out your mouth, positive feedback loop between vocal expletives and stress hormone levels, B, Cats that eat cat food have worse smelling breath than cats that eat human food. Or C, sing softly and carry a big stick. Signals of aggressive intent in songs Sparrow. Number three? You win! You are correct! (laughs) (laughs) This is a lot of, this is very dense. This is very dense. I think you need to summarize, yeah. The bird itself earlier had sung an aggressive song. If they play it back to the bird in the presence of a taxidermied bird, they'll attack the bird. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't. Uh, that sounded like a bunch of gibberish to me. To be honest, yeah. <laughs> it is a bunch of gibberish. But it's a real paper. It worries me though that we can't. Yeah. That this game exists. That yeah, we can't I, know. Apart. I know. I was thinking about this. I mean, I can't. I still can't understand what they found. But um, <laughs> I was watching uh, this weekend a couple of dogs play. You know, and they mm-hmm. and they do this play fighting thing. But then there's always this moment where they both very abruptly and simultaneously stop play fighting, right? Mm-hmm. So they're fighting, 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 and then suddenly not fighting. And I've seen many pairs of dogs yeah. do the same behavior. <laughs> and so there must be some signal that they are sending to one another. And I thought that I saw this this snort, but I was mm-hmm. wondering, I was like, somebody must have figured out what is, there's, they, they must be talking to each other and say, all right, yeah. t- time out, time out, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, they do that with rats, right? Young Ponsky, who does all this like rat tickling stuff where they have the rats... He, he thinks they're, he calls it laughter. So basically rats will emit this really high frequency ultrasonic sound uh, when they're play fighting with each other that they don't admit any other time. They don't admit when they're actually fighting with each other. And so mm. the signal there isn't that this is real fighting, that it's not real fighting. So they're just sort of like giggling and, and fighting with each other. <laughs> and you can also get that if you tickle them. With, a human can tickle their bellies and like play fight with them and, yeah. and they'll also laugh. Never tried Ultrasonic rat li- laughter. This is <laughs> excellent. Yeah, I'm not sure if mice do it. This is this has just been done mice in rats. Do yeah, yeah. Did I say mice? No, she said oh, mice. Oh, yeah, okay. mice don't particularly like humans that much. They That's don't. Public yeah, service I don't think they would appreciate it if I. No, I think they would just <laughs> bite you if you tried to tickle them. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> they especially don't like me. Apparently. Oh, Have you read this paper? Yeah, yeah. There's a paper Jeff's about paper. Yeah. Testers, yeah. Basically, the bottom line is that male experimenters make animals very anxious compared mm-hmm. to female experimenters. And it's funny, when he was collecting the pilot data for that, I couldn't be one of the testers because I was pregnant. So who knows what hormones I had. So I was excluded from the tester list. But afterwards, I saw the paper come out and I saw him at the American Pain Society meeting uh, earlier this month. And one thing I was thinking is, Thank God it wasn't the reverse, or else it would have plunged women back to yeah. the 1600s because, like, out of the lab, girls, you're not allowed, you know. So thank God it's the guys. I'm yeah, happy I was that. very happy. It's like, oh, yeah, a paper that, like, a group that's not biased against women. Yeah. <laughs> we is, got one. hard to come by. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, on that uplifting note, uh, <laughs> I, I, thank you so much for joining us today, Merle. Very welcome. 
And thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Greg Miller, a senior science writer with Wired magazine. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Ada Yee, Erica Senior, Jordan Sorokin, Julia Turan, and myself. You can find all the past episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast, Neurotalk, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org.